0: Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this session, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. And it's a section that revolves around the subject of prayer. Throughout Luke's Gospel, he has noted Jesus' consistent habit of prayer. He talks about how Jesus gets up early to go to a quiet place to pray. Jesus was praying by himself when the transfiguration happened. Or when Jesus, uh, when the 72 return after their ministry and they come back to Jesus, Jesus then breaks out in prayer. This is actually a fairly distinctive and important part of Luke's gospel. He presents Jesus as a man of prayer. His life and his ministry is undergirded by a consistent habit of praying. And one of the things that Luke seems to be saying by showing us that is that as disciples, we need to follow suit. So here in Luke 11, 1 through 13, A unnamed disciple comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to teach him to pray. And so here's how this section breaks down. You get that request to teach teach us how to pray. And then after that, you get three parts. You get Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. And then you get an illustration and an illustration. So that's how this section works. The request to teach us how to pray. Then The Lord's Prayer, and then two illustrations all revolving around prayer. So let's dive in and look at some of the details. Luke chapter 11 verse 1 reads like this. Now it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, again Luke is noting that this is just part of his way of life, part of his manner of life. So Jesus is praying, and here's what happens. When he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples to pray. Just a couple things interesting about this. Jesus' disciples, as were John's disciples, were Jews. They grew up in a culture marked by prayer. They prayed in their homes. They prayed in the synagogues. That there was prayer all around them in the temple at feasts, right? Like this was just part of their culture, part of their life. So they grew up around people praying and around lots of prayer. And yet they they needed to be taught how to pray. Teach us, Lord, to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. So two things there. One, apparently John the Baptist taught his disciples his approach to prayer, how to pray, and two, uh, this disciple is asking Jesus, "Teach us to pray." So even though they grew up with lots of prayer and around lots of prayer, they still feel the need to pray. And in fact, I would add, there is presumably something perhaps distinctive about Jesus's praying, maybe John's praying as well, that motivated motivated them to want to learn. How to pray like he did. And so he comes, he asks Jesus. The rest of this section then is Jesus' answer to this question. It's Jesus' teaching on how to pray. And we we get uh, a, a shortened version of the Lord's Prayer first. And then we get two illustrations about prayer after that. And so the first uh, part of Jesus' teaching on how to pray is Uh, the Lord's Prayer. Although in Luke's account, it's a a shortened version. This is traditionally what's been called the Lord's Prayer, but the traditional version we're used to is the one from Matthew chapter 6. This version here in Luke 11 is a little bit shorter. It doesn't have some of the additional phrases. So here's the way it plays out here in Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, verse 2. He said to them, when you pray, say. And so he's going to give them a model prayer. So technically, the Lord's Prayer, what we call that, is actually a model prayer, at least giving a framework for how to pray. So when you pray, say, Father, and Jesus' teaching on prayer here begins with the word Father. That's what we're taught to address God. Father. And in fact, in verses 11 through 13, it's going to end with an illustration about a father. And that reminds us that for Jesus and the way he prayed, and thus the way he expects us to pray, is we are addressing a father, a good father. This is a term of both respect and intimacy. Abba was the standard Jewish way of addressing dads, and it didn't, wasn't just the way little kids address dads, it was also the way an adult child would address their dad, Abba, Father. And it was a term that, that had both the sense of respect for his position and his, his authority, as well as intimacy and closeness, Abba, Father. So, pray, saying, Father. Prayer is relating to God as Father, Father. And Jesus will make it clear in what follows that God is a father who gives good gifts. Let me just pause right there and a little bit of an aside before we work through the rest of the text. I know sometimes this idea of uh, addressing God as father is troublesome and problematic for people who had really negative experiences of an earthly father. And I get that. My earliest childhood memory is the night my dad walked out on the family. I was three and a half years old. So I get that. I didn't have a good father at home uh, as I was growing up. One of the things I have learned and I want to just suggest it here for you as we think about addressing God as father. One of the things I have learned is this, is instead of letting my experience of uh, my father shape my view of God, I've chosen to go the opposite direction And let what I learn about God in scripture shape my view of what it means to be a father. And that helped me as a dad. And that helps me relate to God as father as well. It doesn't remove all the difficulties and all the problems if you've had a negative view of uh, fathers. But I think that's the proper way to go about it is we look what how God is described in scripture. We look how fathers are described in scripture. And that's how we understand who God is. And we we constantly have to remind ourselves that uh, our experience of fatherhood isn't the only way fatherhood has to play out. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, addressing God as father. He goes on and he says, uh, pray like this, Father, hallowed be your name. And that phrase is traditional religious language, and it doesn't always resonate or communicate super clearly to us the word hallowed. Is uh, comes from the verb to be holy or to be set apart or to be sanctified. And so when we're saying, hallowed be your name, we're asking for God, God's name to be set apart and sanctified as holy. And the opposite of holy is profane or common. And so what we're saying is, God, we want your name to be treated as holy, not as common, not as profane. In fact, there's a passage in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 33, 23, that helps us understand, I think, the weight and the significance of this idea of hallowing God's name. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23 says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you. In their sight, and that gives us an idea of really the weight and the significance of what we're getting at when we pray this. Hallowed be your name. We're wanting to make sure that God honors His name in and through His people, and implicitly, even though we're asking God by this request to do that, we're recognizing the importance of not profaning God's name, not treating it as common, not letting it be, um, you know, this. Really just like slandered among the nations, as he says there in Ezekiel 36. And so we pray, Hallowed be your name. May your name be treated as holy, as unique, as distinct, as different, as special because of who you are, O God. That's what this request is. So hallowed be your name. And then, we get your kingdom come now in the traditional version from Matthew you get the follow up phrase your will be done we don't get that here in Luke we just get your kingdom come and god's kingdom is really god's rule and god's reign and so when we when we pray your kingdom come what we're asking is for god's reign god's kingship god's rule over the world to come fully and completely. And Jesus, as has been noted all throughout Luke's gospel, is preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's, he is, uh, in his own actions, bringing God's kingdom about. This request is recognizing that in and through Jesus, God's kingdom is coming, but it hasn't come completely and totally yet. And so we pray, though your kingdom has been inaugurated, we're wanting it to be uh completed and come in fullness. So may your kingdom come. May your rule, your reign, your wise, just, gracious, truth-filled reign come to this world. Your kingdom come. Next, verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. One of the things that's a little tricky about that phrase just technically, is the word daily. Give us each day our daily bread. That word for daily is actually unattested before this um, and is somewhat unclear. Like it's never used in Greek literature prior to this time. And it's somewhat unclear as to exactly what that word means, daily. And, And there are actually some variations on how to understand that. But the phrase just prior to it, each day, give us each day our daily bread, I think makes clear Jesus' intent. Provide for us whatever we need for each day. That's really the force of this phrase. And so when we're praying this, we're asking God to provide for our needs for each day. Uh, and in some ways, it recalls the manna experience from Exodus, right? If you're familiar with the Exodus story, um, The Jews, every morning, and and there would be manna, a bread-like substance on the ground that the Jews would gather just enough for that day. That's the way manna worked. And this really is an echo of that. God, just as you in the past have provided for your people just what they needed for each day, do so for us as well. So give us each day our daily bread. Jesus goes on in teaching us how to pray. Verse 4, and he says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. A couple notes out of that, that notice the idea of we forgive everyone who's indebted, that forgiveness essentially at its core is releasing someone from debt. We're not going to make them pay. That's the, the essence of forgiveness. And And so here we're asking God to do that for us. God, forgive us our sins. Uh, Don't make us pay for our sins. Be merciful to us. Cancel our debt. That's what we're asking. Forgive us our sins. And notice that's here as consistent in all of Jesus' teaching. That's tied with our forgiving of others. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And this is just consistent for Jesus' teaching. That forgiveness begets forgiveness. Someone who has received grace from God gives grace to others. Um, And if we don't give grace to others, that's going to negate the experience of getting grace from God. That's consistent in Jesus' teaching. So forgive us Um, because we're forgiving of other people. Those two go together. You can't be forgiven if you won't forgive. And if you have been forgiven, the necessary um, expression of that is to forgive other people. Those go together. And then again, the next line, and do not lead us into temptation. Don't lead us into temptation, which can be a tricky phrase because God doesn't tempt anybody. So what does he mean? I think we get Some idea of this, even later in Luke, Luke 22, verse 40 and verse 46, Jesus is praying in the garden. He has his uh, three closest friends with him, and he wants them to pray as well. And he's told them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And what he seems to be saying is that prayer is a necessary antidote to temptation. It's necessary to have the strength to avoid it. Here, what we're saying is, Do not lead us into temptation. The idea is of God leading us safely through the minefields of temptation. That God is a good shepherd and he will lead us safely through. So to lead us into, um, we're asking God to actually keep us away from, guide us through the minefields of this world, this life, so that we do not fall into temptation, as Jesus puts it in Luke 22. Now from here... Jesus is given at that point a basic framework for prayer. Um, We're asking God for things. We're doing so out of a deep respect and honor for who God is. We want his person and his name to be honored. We're, We're doing so for a... We're praying with a a mindful of the world isn't everything it's supposed to be yet, and so we're wanting God's kingdom to come. We recognize that um, we can't make life happen, and we need God to provide for our needs, and that we're not all we're cracked up to be, so we need grace and forgiveness, and we need guidance to make sure that we avoid evil and problems. So we're praying in that framework, and then from here, Jesus gives two illustrations, both showing why we can expect God to answer our prayers. Um, So they're an important part of Jesus' teaching on how to pray because they show the heart with which we ought to pray. Both illustrations involve relationships, um, and that should be instructive to us. Jesus sees prayer As part of a real relationship with God. And so it quote unquote works, prayer works in relational ways. That's really at the heart of these, both of these illustrations that Jesus gives us here. So the first illustration is this. And Jesus said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend lend me three loaves because a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I don't have anything to serve him. And from inside the house, he answers and says, do not bother me. Now, let's make sure we hear this in Jesus' context. It's really important. Uh, Traditional Jewish village life, much more communal than so much of our experiences of life. And so there's a lot more interdependence, there's a lot more of community responsibility, there's a lot more of working together because they were a communal culture. And Jesus here has presented this illustration in such a way that the problem isn't with this late night request, but with the answer given to it. That's the way Jesus presents this. Our assumption would be, at least in American contexts, is no one would ever do this. You would not go and knock on a friend's house at midnight. That would be shameful. You would find, you know, a 24-hour grocery store or you know someplace and you'd go buy what you needed. You would never go bother a friend at midnight. How rude is that. But not in Jesus culture. And so Jesus has presented this in such a way that the problem isn't with the fact that. A guy came to his friend's house at midnight. The problem is with the way the the friend responds. And so, um, as one commentator notes, uh, who of you will have a friend that gives this response? That's the force of the way Jesus presented this. In Jesus' culture, the answer would be no one. No one would ever respond this way, right? Like, suppose one of you has a friend. Who of you has a friend? You go to them at midnight, you tell them someone's come to your house, you don't have any bread, and they're going to say, don't bother me. And the, the audience of Jesus would say, no one would do that. None of my friends would do that. And that's because this is a real need. And even though it comes at an inconvenient time, hospitality needs to be taken care of. Hospitality was one of the highest values in Jesus' culture. Anyone in Jesus' culture would sense deeply the responsibility to make sure the friend's guest was taken care of. I mean, this this is a village responsibility. Like, we've got to make sure this guest is taken care of. And so no one's going to answer with, don't bother me, don't bother me. Uh, Verse 7, Jesus goes on with the illustration and says, And from inside, he answers and says, Don't bother me. The door has already been shut up. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything again. The force of the way Jesus' word of this is, no one would have a friend that would do that. But this scene pictures a traditional peasant home from Jesus' day, where everyone slept in one room, on floor, on mats. Mats usually woven out of palm branches, or some such thing. And Jesus' listeners are intended to identify with the, peti- the the petitioner, the one who's asking for bread, and recognize that this question would never get this kind of response. He's asking a friend, notice, not just a neighbor. He's asking on behalf of a guest, and the honor of the guest who's come for Uh, visit and the honor of the village is at stake in this whole situation. And so this would never happen. You would never get this kind of response. Don't bother me. I'm in bed. I can't help. Um, Jesus goes on and continues to flesh out the story like this. Verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything just because he's his friend, yet because of his shamelessness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, this is the point of the illustration here in verse 8. Jesus is making the point, and guess what? It's a little tricky. (laughs) It's a little hard to understand. The sticking point is the word translated here in this version, shamelessness. He won't get up. Maybe he won't get out of bed just because of his friend, yet because of his shamelessness, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. That word translated shamelessness um, is really the hinge point of the point of the illustration. What's going on with shamelessness? Well, most translations, especially in the past, have translated that word uh, as persistence or boldness, Uh, and they take it to be referring to the the guy who's coming and asking for bread. And so... The friend won't get up and get him anything, but because of his persistence. And the his, um, in older translations, is assumed to be the guy asking for bread. And so he won't be put off by these excuses. He'll keep knocking until his friend finally gets up and gives him some bread and sends him on his way. Uh, There's two problems with that particular approach in that translation. One, it suggests that God gives begrudgingly, and we have to beg, beg, beg to get anything from God. Uh, And that doesn't seem really consistent with what Jesus' point is here or the rest of Scripture. The second problem is that the word, uh, the Greek word is anadia in Greek, never has a positive connotation in the Greek Old Testament or in other Greek literature. So in all known Greek writings, this particular word never means anything positive like boldness or persistence where it has a positive sense. It always has a negative sense. And so it doesn't seem right to shift it into a positive virtue here that uh, thus gets the response from his friend. So, what's the solution? Well, notice verse 8 again. Who who is verse 8 about? Who is the subject all throughout verse 8? Is it the one asking for bread? Or is it the friend who's in bed? Which one is it? Well, it's the friend who's in bed. Um, He's the subject of everything in verse 8. And so, there's no reason to shift in the middle Uh, to it being about the one asking for bread. Let's keep the whole thing about the friend who is in bed. And that's what this translation here that I read from does. Um, It's not the asker's shamelessness, it's the friend in bed's shamelessness. And so yet because of his shamelessness, he will get up and give him what he needs. And so he's the subject. The sleeping friend is the subject. And so we're not talking about an action by the petitioner, the one asking for bread. We're talking about the response of the friend who is in bed. He will get up and he will help him because of his Anadiah, his shamelessness. Now, we're in an honor and shame culture in this context. And just as the host needs bread to not lose face with his guest who's shown up at an inconvenient time, so the sleeping friend will get up and give bread so he doesn't lose face in the community. Because here's what's going to happen. If he doesn't get out of bed and give bread to his friend who's asking for it, his friend will go to another house and ask for it. And guess what's going to happen? Word then will spread through the community because of the very communal culture. Red will, word will spread through the community and everyone will know that he, he, the first guy didn't help. And he will suffer shame. He will be dishonored. And in an honor-shame culture, that's just not going to happen. And so what's going to happen is, even though it's inconvenient, even though he's in bed, even though maybe he doesn't feel like getting up, he will get up and he will help his friend to preserve the honor of his name. And so, uh, one commentator, Garland, summarizes the point like this He says, If a friend grants your request in the middle of the night, even though he's asleep and he's tempted to put you off with lame excuses, uh, if not because of friendship, but to avoid shame, he will help you out. How much more will God, a loving father, respond to your requests? That's the point. That's the point of this illustration. Look, this friend who's tempted to put you off because with lame excuses because he's already in bed, he'll get up uh, to preserve his honor. Guess what? God, who's a loving father, he'll help you out as well. And so Jesus says, verse 9, So I say to you, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it'll be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it'll be open. Notice he's playing off of the action and the story, knocking, seeking, asking. Do that with God. Just as the the friend in, in the middle of the night asked for bread, Well, we come to God and we ask, and God will hear and respond because he's a good father and he loves to help his children. So that's illustration number one. Then we get illustration number two in verses 11 through 13, and it's this. Now, which of you fathers, we're back to this image of God being a father, which of you fathers uh, will, um, will his son ask for a fish and instead of a fish, he will give him a snake? As a father, would you do that? Here, can I have a fish? Here's a snake. Or, he will ask for an egg, and his father will give him a scorpion. Would any father do that? And the uh, presumed answer is, of course not. He's not going to give him a scorpion, which will harm him if he wants an egg. He, he's not going to give him a snake, which might harm him if he asks for a fish. No, he'll he'll actually make sure he gives what will help him out, not what's going to harm him. So, the point, verse 13 So, Jesus says, if you, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? And so, even though we are broken, frail, and evil, Jesus says, human beings, as fathers, we're far from perfect, and we don't always get it right. We know how to give good gifts, right? Right? How much more will your Heavenly Father, who's perfect, who's full of perfect love and perfect wisdom and perfect goodness, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? In Matthew's version of the same account, he ends it with good gifts, not just the Holy Spirit, as Luke does here. Luke preserved this version, and I suspect that Jesus means our Heavenly Father will give us good gifts, And the best of those gifts is the Holy Spirit when you put Matthew and Luke together. That's the idea. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need, and He'll give us good gifts. And the very best gift He could give us is His own presence to come and live and dwell with us and help us out in the person of the Spirit. And so God is a good Father, and He gives good gifts, even the best gift, His own presence, to us. So just a couple reflections on Jesus' teaching on prayer here. He was asked, teach us how to pray. And that's what this whole section is about. And one of the things we should see out of this is that prayer involves asking. So often we're, uh, it seems, made to feel as if, you know, our asking God is a greedy thing or we shouldn't do it. And yes, there's certainly other forms of prayer such as praise, such as thanksgiving, such as lament, right? There are other forms of praying, but at the heart of it is asking. And so in the version of the Lord's Prayer, you get here, you get requests. Uh, We're told to come and ask, right, for bread, ask for our needs, and our Father will give us good gifts. So ask, prayer is asking. And that is not a lower form or an unimportant kind of prayer. So ask, ask. Prayer is asking. The other reflection I would offer here is the consistent theme. We've noted it all the way through. And that is that God is a wise and good father. So when we pray and when we ask, we're asking not just some generic God. We're asking our father in heaven. And our father is good And he's wise. He knows what we need and he is willing to give it because he's a good father. And you put these two together in the context of the Bible in total, and it shows us that prayer is part of a real relationship with God, a relationship that's like a partnership. We were created to be friends and partners with God in caring for and reigning over this world. Clear back in the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. That's the way God created the world. That's our role. We are to live in partnership with God. To to we're his images, right? Like we're we're to reflect his wisdom and his goodness and his truth and his justice into this world. So we were to be God's partners in caring for and reigning over this world. Obviously we messed that up with the fall, but God is calling us back to himself so that we can be partners in bringing his kingdom into this world. And prayer is a key part of that. So prayer isn't a mechanical thing. Like you're going to a giant vending machine in the sky. And you put in the right word order. And you punch the right buttons. And boom you'll get whatever you ask for. Prayer is relational. It's relational with a good father. And we're his partners in loving. And caring for. And leading. And bringing healing and justice to this world. And so we pray as Sons and daughters of a good father, and we're, were praying as his partners in caring for this world.